I would invite you to turn with me to the book of Romans. We have this final sermon in Romans chapter 6, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll begin a little series in the book of Jonah, which I am very much looking forward to. But one more, one more sermon from the end of Romans in chapter 6. If you're using a pew Bible, then that is on page 915, Romans 6. Romans 6, the second half of Romans 6, gives us one of the most dramatic before and after pictures ever in history. And uh, I think before and after pictures are fun. People enjoy seeing before and after pictures because we like seeing the contrast between the before and the after, right? I, I've been, this summer, I've been doing a, 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 a project in my yard. I've been clean. We have a row of willow trees on the west side of our property, and they were kind of a mess, and they were all overgrown, and you couldn't even walk through them. And so this, this summer, I've been pruning them and, and cleaning them up, and now they look good. They look okay. Like, if you saw them, you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't like stop in your tracks and be amazed. They just, they just look okay. They don't call attention to themselves now. They just look like a row of trees. But every time I see them, though, I think I should have took a before picture because they, if, you, if you saw what they look like before, you would be very, very impressed. It's the contrast that makes them look so good. That's the benefit of the before and the after pictures. If you know what it looked like before, then what it looks like right now is more impressive. Or, or even, uh, to, to use another illustration, not willow trees, but people, right? Can you, have you seen those before? And if you just saw a picture of a strong guy, well, so what? We see strong guys all the time. Some guys are strong. But if, if the before picture, he was like a 95-pound weakling, a skinny little guy, and then over six weeks, you know, he did, the, he did the exercises and drank the shakes and did all the stuff you're supposed to do, and now he's like this big, strong guy. That's impressive. What's impressive is the contrast between the before and the after. Okay, well, that's what we're going to get in the second half of Romans 6. So I'm going to read it, and then I'll pray after I read it. Romans 6, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves... You're slaves to the one you obey, whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, 
but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Holy Father, we recognize that your word endures forever, that other things are fleeting, they come and they go and they fade, but your word does not. It, it has not faded, it does not fade. It endures forever. Even in heaven, your word will be true and it will endure. So I pray now as we think about your word, you'd help us to make sense of it, to understand it, to understand what you were intending to convey to us when you inspired these words and to help us to then internalize them and apply them and live in accordance with them. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I want to look specifically at the before and after picture that emerges from these verses. And so I'll call your attention to the before and the after to make sure that we didn't miss it, okay? Starting uh, in verse 16, he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death. That's before. That's the before picture. Slave to sin, which leads to death. Or, he says of obedience which leads to righteousness. Okay, that's after. Okay, verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, that's before, you were once slaves of sin, have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. That's after. That's what you are now. Verse 18, and having been set free from sin. Again, that means before we were captive to sin. He says, now you have become slaves of righteousness. That's after. Verse 19, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, that's before, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness, leading to sanctification. That's after. Verses 20 and 21, for when you were slaves of sin... You were free with regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. That's before, on a path leading to death. But verse 22, but now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God and the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. That's after. One more, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. That's before the wages that we were earning from our sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's after. Okay, so now we have our before and our after pictures. Just compile them to get a good, accurate picture. Okay, before, according to this passage, before we were slaves to sin, we presented our members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, which led to more lawlessness, and the path that we were on was leading to death. That's before. That's bleak. But that's what this passage says. But now, Paul keeps saying, but now, indicating that's not the case anymore, but now we've been set free from sin. We present our members as slaves of righteousness, which leads to sanctification, and the path we're on leads to eternal life. Right? There could not be a more dramatic change in the before and the after. They're totally different. They're completely opposite. 
So what is the difference? What happened? Why such a radical change? Right? We need to explain it. It's like when you see the before picture of the skinny little guy and then the after picture and he's big and huge. You ask, well, what happened? How do we explain that? What did he do? Same thing with this picture in Romans 6. We need to understand what changed from the before to the after. Because I want that. Don't you want that? So what is the difference? The answer is found in verse 14. Right before Paul paints this detailed before and after picture, he says, you are not under law but under grace. That's the difference. You're not under law anymore, but you're under grace now. The before picture is you and I under law. That's what we look like under law. Slaves to sin, presenting members to impurity on a path that leads to death. That's us under the law. The after picture is you and I under grace. Right? This is what we look like under grace. We're set free from sin. We present our members to God as slaves of righteousness. And we are on a path that leads to eternal life. That's us under grace. And so the conclusion that you might be tempted to draw is that, oh, got it. Law is bad. Grace is good. Right? Because the law picture was the ugly picture. And the grace picture was the beautiful picture. So law must be bad and grace must be good. Right? Wrong. That's wrong. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with me. I am bad and the law is good. and That is why I need grace. Let's say that again. It's the main point this morning. I am bad and the law is good. That is why I need grace. Paul makes that point explicitly in the next two chapters of Romans, right? Romans 6, 7, 8. Uh, I'm not going to preach through all those, but they kind of go together as a unit. And so in Romans chapter 7, Paul says explicitly, he says, the law is holy. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Okay, make no mistake. The law is holy and it is righteous and it is good. But then he goes on to talk about the problem. Despite the fact that the law is good, he finds that he's not able to keep it. In fact, let's just read it. Romans, if you're still there, Romans 7, and I'm going to read, I'll read verses 13 to 17. We'll see what he says about the law and about himself. Romans 7, 13 to 17. Did that which is good then, the law, did that which is good then become death to me? Well, by no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, and what I hate, I do. For if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. Let there be mo- no mistake, the law is good, the problem is me. That's what Paul's saying, and I am agreeing. <laughs> the law is good, the problem is me. 
Finally, in agony, you get to verse 24 of Romans 7, and he just, it's, it's like he, he calls out. I, just, I picture him. Uh, we know that he verbally spoke these letters, and someone wrote them down. I picture him being uh, uh, very emotional when he comes to this part. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he answers his own question, and he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Okay, that's the problem. What is the solution? Grace, right? That's where Romans 8.1 comes in. He immediately follows that, a discussion of his own failure to keep the law and the condemnation that he feels. He follows that in Romans 8 with these words, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God did what the law couldn't do. The law is good, but the law couldn't make us obey it. So God stepped in, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Okay, the law is good. We are not good. That is why we need grace. And that is why you and I should wake up every morning and rejoice. The first thing, to rejoice over the fact that we are not under law, but we are under grace. We are not that before picture. We are the after. All right, last question. Last question. If we're under grace, if we're saved by grace and not by works so that no one may boast, that's Ephesians 2, then what is the purpose of the law? I'll give you three, three purposes of the law. Purpose number one of the law, the law points to our sin. The law gives us information. It points to our sin. Right? It doesn't let us get away with it. Number two, the law points to our Savior. Right? It, doesn't, it, it points out our sin, but then it points to our Savior. And use number three of the law, the law points the path of righteousness. The law shines a light on the path that we should walk. It shows us the path of righteousness. Okay, so the law points out our sin, the law points out our Savior, and the law shows us where to go. It points out the path of righteousness. Just a word on each. First, the law points out our sin. The law gives the standard by which I can measure my life. And when I do that, when I measure my life, Against the law, I come to the disheartening conclusion that I do not measure up to God's law. I remember years ago, I was speaking to a man. It's, it's funny what people will say to you when they find out you're a pastor. Even if they don't know you, never met you, they just, it, it's interesting what, what people say when they find out you're a pastor. So I didn't know this guy. I was talking to him. I said, as a pastor, he immediately said, oh yeah? Well, I don't like the Bible. I said, oh, really? <laughs> Why not? He said, oh, I think that the Bible was designed to make us feel guilty. To which I responded, well, have you ever thought that it makes us feel that way because we are guilty? <laughs> no response from the guy. Uh, 
I'm a transgressor, right? I have sinned against the holy God. The law gives me that information. It tells me that. And while that might not make us feel especially good about ourselves, that was the problem this guy had. The law doesn't make me feel good, is what he was saying. And he's right, it doesn't. That's still important and useful information, right? It's like those flashing speed limit signs that only flash when you're going too fast. But yeah, surely you've never seen them flash because you're always going the right speed. I can tell you, they flash. <laughs> uh, that's helpful information. It's helpful information because there are police officers out there who will enforce the law. And what I found out they will enforce the law whether you were aware of the law or not. They don't seem to care. Well, one morning I found that out firsthand. I'm going 34 in a 25. Now, granted, this is the States, so we're talking miles per hour, not kilometers, but still, that's slow, right? 34, but the law was 25. I'm telling you, I promise you, I thought it was 30. I thought it was 30. Okay, okay, 34 is still over 30, but like it's within range, right? So I thought it was 30. I informed the police officer. I was on my way to a church meeting. <laughs> thought, I thought he might want to know that. He didn't. <laughs> I then told him that uh, I didn't know. I, I honestly, I thought it was 30. He believed me but he didn't care. <laughs> he didn't care. Also, it turns out I had a headlight out. Another fact that I did not know. Also, it turns out I didn't have my insurance papers. <laughs> Another fact I did not know. I was paid up. I had insurance. <laughs> I just didn't have those papers that you're supposed to put in the glove box. So I was a transgressor. On multiple points of the law, and I didn't even know it. I, I thought I was a law-abiding citizen. Turns out I wasn't. And my ignorance did not save me from the consequences. I had, I had no mediator who came and paid my debt. I had to pay it myself. And then I had to keep on paying it when my insurance went up. Now, it, <laughs> it, 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 it would have been so helpful that morning if I had paid attention to that little light in the dashboard that had been telling me for quite a while that I had a headlight out. I just ignored it, though. I'm very good at ignoring those lights. And if I would have had a flashing sign telling me that I was transgressing the speed limit, that would have been helpful. And if I had had the common sense to know that paying my insurance is not enough, <laughs> I also need that little card proving that I've paid it. See, I failed to pay attention to the law, and so I received retribution, and the penalty, though I didn't like it, the penalty was just. So listen, it's a real blessing when God's law points out our transgressions. Right? That's a blessing. That's useful information. That's important information. Right? If you're breaking the law, you want to know. Right? And so... We're going along, just living regular life, and all of a sudden, I'll, just use, I'll speak in the first person, I'm going along in regular life, and all of a sudden I realize in my heart that I want something that's not mine. And then I look at God's law, and it tells me, 
you shall not covet. And I am convicted of the fact that me wanting that thing, that's, just not, that's not just a personal thing. That's a transgression of God's good and holy law, and I'm guilty. Or maybe throughout the course of a day, I say something that's not fully true. It's not a lie exactly, but it's not fully true. It's not all the way true. It's kind of shaded. Everybody does that sometimes. And then I look at God's law, and I'm reminded, no, 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 but God has a different standard. God's law says, you shall not lie. And I am convicted that I am a lawbreaker. Or I find myself loving something more than I love God. And God's law tells me, you shall have no other gods before me. And once again, I come to the conclusion that I am a lawbreaker. That's information that we need. So the law points to our sin, but secondly, the law points us to our Savior, right? That's why in Romans 7, after Paul talks about the sin-revealing role of the law, right? He says, the law, the law showed me that I'm a sinner. Then he immediately goes on to turn his attention, and ours, to Jesus, right? Because if all the law did was point out our sin and make us feel guilty, that would be no help at all. That would be no good at all, right? That would just be depressing and discouraging, But Paul basically says this, the law revealed my sin, the law made me feel bad about myself, but thanks be to God that through Jesus Christ our Lord, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? So the law points out our sin, but then it immediately, once we acknowledge our sin, points us to our Savior. I'll give give an illustration. It's a little bit silly, but hopefully memorable. I want you to imagine on this stage, just imagine a big door up here on the stage and then imagine two individuals on each side of the door that are armed and strong and look maybe a little bit menacing. And, and you want to go through the door. In fact, you, it's not just that you want to go through the door. You, you, you feel it. You must go through that door. There's something about that door that you got to get through it. And so, even though there's these two figures on the sides of it, you decide, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it. I'm going to walk through the door. So you get up and you walk. But when you get in front of the door, they kind of collapse onto you and grab you and throw you down onto the ground. And one of them puts his knee on your back and the other one grabs your head and starts to twist it. That doesn't feel good. And so you kind of squirm out of it and go, and go away. And you decide to try again. You, you just can't give up because you know you need to get through that door. So you try again. Same thing happens. You're tackled. You get a knee in the back. Grab your head. Start twisting it. You think, this is not good. Okay, I got to get stronger. I got to train. So you go away. You train. You lift weights. You build up your muscles. You come back. You're ready to fight now. You're ready to make it through that door. You go. Top speed. You're going to make it. They step in front and stop you. Pin you. Kneel on you. Turn your head. This is getting old. Finally, you're pinned down there. You've done everything you can do, and you're clearly not going to make it through the door. And you say, I give up. I cannot do this. Right at that moment, you realize that this guy is twisting your head and twisting your neck to look at something, to see something. In fact, to see someone. And finally, you look and you see someone is standing there in all of his splendor and all of his majesty. And you realize, oh, he is the way through 
this door. If ever I'm going to go through this door, I need a chaperone. I need an accompaniment. I need someone else to get me through it. And at that moment, the law steps right off your back, right? And at that moment, you realize, oh, wait a minute. The law, which I think you figured out by now, those two people guarding the door represent the law. The law wasn't your enemy. The law wasn't bad. The law wasn't trying to hurt you. The law was serving a purpose. The law was pointing you to Jesus. And Jesus is the only way that you're getting through that door right? You can't walk through that door by your own good works. I can't walk through that door, but he can. And all the while, the law was trying to point us to see him so that he could bring us through that door. All right, that's the second use of the law. So the first use of the law, the law points out our sin, right? It's the standard by which we measure ourselves and see that we don't measure up. Number two, the law points us to our Savior. It points us to the only one who does measure up to the law, who didn't fail. And point number three, the law points out a path of righteousness. Right? The order is essential here. If you skip that one, like so many people do, then you're under the law. Right? And that puts you on the path leading to death. Until we recognize our sin, repent of our sin, put our faith in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, the law can only condemn us. That was the whole problem with Israel. I referenced this last week. In in Romans chapter 9, it says Israel got into trouble because they pursued the law as if it were based on works and not by faith. See, the law is not a self-help program. It is only after we've been humbled at the foot of the cross and forgiven by grace that we can then pursue the law by faith and not by works. And then, in that case, the law goes from a duty to a delight, right? It goes from a burden to a joy. Same law, but we're different. I think you know, I think most of you know this story. I told it once a number of years ago here, uh, and even then, uh, people already knew it. It's a pretty well-known, but it's a story about a guy who um, was raised in the church, but never, never really came to faith in Jesus Christ, never really believed uh, in Christ and never asked for the forgiveness of his sins. He went on to live a life of crime. Uh, he ended up being in prison. While he was in prison, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And when he got out, he wanted to go to church. So he just picked a church and went to it. Uh, it was one of those churches where it was uh, the preacher maybe didn't have much to say, and so he was having a hard time following it. And uh, his his mind started to wander, and he started to look around the place and. He saw that the Ten Commandments were mounted on the wall. You know this story? He, uh, he's reading through the Ten Commandments, and all of a sudden it hits him. All of a sudden it hits him. Something has changed. The Ten Commandments are the same. Those are the ones he knew when he was a boy, but they feel different now because now he's after as opposed to before. And now what used to feel like harsh commandments, almost like threats, now feel like promises, right? You shall not steal, right? That feels harsh, like almost like a threat, like you better not steal or else, all of a sudden sounded like a promise. You shall not steal. 
because of God's grace in your life, you will no longer be a thief. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. Threat. Punishment. Do not lie or you will be in trouble. Suddenly now feels like a promise. You shall not lie anymore. (laughs) Because of God's grace, you are going to be a lover and a speaker of the truth. You shall not lie. You shall not covet. Goes from a commandment to a promise. Because of God's grace in your life, you will now be satisfied with the things that he has provided and you shall not covet. Do you see the difference? The law goes from being this harsh master to being a friend and a guide. But the law hasn't changed. Well, what has changed? He's no longer under law, but under grace. That's the before and the after picture. The law is not bad. The law and grace are not opposed to each other. They go together. We are under grace. We're not under the law. And therefore, we are, we are empowered to keep the law. That's why Jesus himself came, said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus likes the law. Go back and read the Gospels and look at how Jesus interacts with the law and what he says about the law. And what you'll see is he likes it. It's good. It's God's law. He was, Jesus was born under the law. He was the only one who was under the law and not condemned by the law because he perfectly obeyed the law. And he obeyed it on our behalf so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us through him. And so now we can say, along with the words of Scripture, that the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives our soul. It rejoices our heart. It endures forever. We delight in it. It's, it's more to be desired than gold and silver. That's all from Psalm 19. And that brings us back to our before and after picture, and that's where we end this morning. Look at the before picture. Put yourself in it. See yourself in the before picture. Do you see yourself? enslaved to sin, on a path leading to death. Where's the law? Do you see it? It's on you. It's on you, and you're under it. It's crushing you. Okay, now look at the after picture. It's still you. Look at the after picture. Now you're under grace. Okay, where's the law? It's not gone. It's a little little harder to spot now. Because it's not outside of you. It's not on top of you, crushing you. Where is it? It's in you. It's in you. That brings us back to how we started at the Lord's table this morning. Because of the new covenant, the law has gone from being outside of us, on top of us, and we're under it, to being inside of us. God empowering us to keep it. We are united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. That's how this series began in the beginning of Romans 6. We're united with him in his death and in his resurrection. Therefore, sin no longer has dominion over us. We're not slaves to sin. Death has no power over us. We're not slaves to death. Because we are not under law, but we are under grace. And therefore, we have gone from being wage earners, earning the wages of sin, which is death, to being recipients of a gift. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together. Holy Father, thank you for your law. 
Thank you that it is good and holy and righteous. But I thank you that we're not under it anymore. That wasn't good. That did make us feel guilty and ashamed and as if we don't measure up because we don't measure up. But I thank you that you didn't leave us there. I thank you that now we are under grace. But I'm also thankful that being under grace doesn't mean that your law disappears or is irrelevant to our life. It still matters and it's still good, but now it's a path of blessing. Now it's full of promises. And so I pray that we would walk that path of blessing and find deep joy in obeying your law all the days of our life. In Christ's name, amen.